When will we as a society ever learn that over-exaggerating things ends up in a bad place? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security and public safety. You've probably all heard the story of Chicken Little, right? Chicken Little was this little bird that went around saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and it turned out the sky, in fact, was not falling. Or is that the other thing about the boy who cried wolf? Anyhow, I'm getting my child uh, stories mixed up here. Uh, but the fact is, is that for the past 20 years or so, especially in the in the immediate wake of 9-11, a lot of people lost their shit. And they talked about terrorism being an existential threat to the planet because of the horrendous events, which of course were horrific in nature, almost 3,000 dead, and everyone kind of lost their nerve. And we got the war on terrorism. I don't want to get started on that tangent again. But ever since that time, people tended to uh, take a look at terrorism as if it were bigger than it really was. Now, no, I'm not saying that terrorism is not a problem. Good God, I worked in counterterrorism for 15 years and I've written six books on the topic. So yeah, it's real. Uh, but we do have a tendency to take incidents and blow them out of proportion. Now, we did that with with, with Islam and Muslims after 9-11, where there were people who honestly thought that every Muslim was a terrorist. And we had some terrible things that happened like Guantanamo Bay, uh, some very awful racial attacks against Muslims in mosques and stuff for people that thought that, you know, if you're wearing something on your head, you must be a terrorist. My, my, how things have changed. In the past couple of years, uh, we were faced with a, a similar yet different situation. And it's just that the the language is the same, but the actors have changed. And the actors have gone from being Islamist terrorists, which, by the way, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that still represents by far the greatest casualty count around the world in terms of terrorist attacks. Uh, they have ceded their number one place to what I usually call the far right, which is a very much a dog's breakfast of terms, white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, etc., etc. And you can't pick up a paper or go to a website without seeing an article saying, my God, my God, the sky is falling and the accelerationists are going to win. I don't believe that now any more than I did with the jihadis 22 years ago. But I thought I would bring you to the conversation an old friend of mine. She's a Canadian academic, um, Mia Bloom. She's at Georgia State University. She's well published in the in the area of terrorism and international security. And we're going to talk about uh, a term that she used. I'll introduce it in a second, which talks about this over-exaggeration of threat. So Mia, uh, last time we talked was two and a half years ago. So welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I can't believe it's been so much <laughs> so long. And so I apologize that it's taken me this long to come back onto the podcast. Not a problem. The, the point is you're back. So, so Mia, last time I heard you speak was at a conference in Vancouver about, I'm guessing, a month and a bit ago. It was the Canadian Association of Security Intelligence Studies Vancouver, so the West Coast version of that organization. And you used the term panic porn, which I absolutely love. What do you mean when you use the term panic porn to, re- to refer to how people are viewing terrorism and violent extremism as of December of 2022? Well, so part of what I was doing with cases, which which is the the, the Vancouver based, uh, it's sort of like a, almost a, it's both a journal, it's an association, and it's a meeting of the minds. Yeah, is I was talking at the time about the way in which the far right has been amplifying, uh, like the far right on media has been amplifying this threat coming from transgender or from identity politics, and I called it moral panic. And I used as examples for, you know, looking at Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss books or my favorite, (laughs) which is 
where we're looking, where Tucker Carlson is deciding whether or not the green M&M is still sexy. And, and let me just go so far as to say it's, it's a candy and if anyone's going to be sexy, it's going to be a Smarties. It's not going to be an M&M for my Canadian friends. But I contrasted this moral panic that we've been seeing in these right-wing media echo chambers with the panic porn that I'm seeing coming from the academic community and from sort of the more left-wing circles with regard in particular to, we've got some beautiful music. I don't know what that's no, Sorry, about. it's my phone. Go, sorry, go ahead. Okay, with regard to, you know, uh, an area that I've worked on, QAnon, as well as an area that you've worked on, uh, which is incels. And I think the problem is that um, I'm very suspicious that the underlying motivation to exaggerate the threat, comparable to what we saw 20 and 22 years ago with exaggerating that threat, might be embedded with um, conflicts of interest, with funding for research, with availability of, of contracts and grants, and, you know, echoing what um, we've heard over and over again, that, you know, you have a better chance of being hit by lightning twice and being yeah. killed by a terrorist, John, John Mueller's work from Ohio State, or you have a better chance of being shot by your own toddler than being killed by a terrorist. <laughs> especially in the United States with all the guns, absolutely. <laughs> especially in the United States, actually a pretty high chance. But, but this is where I think it feels like, you know, Groundhog Day, where mm. now we're talking about, you know, the growth of incels and QAnon and to a lesser extent, the far right. And the problem is we've never addressed the, you know, back in my day, it was a $64,000 question. Maybe it's up to a million now. <laughs> that so few people who are consuming this material online or posting or sharing ever, ever engage. And so I find it problematic that a number of the think tanks, as well as scholars, will count the number of people involved in mm -hmm. online yeah. dissemination of propaganda and radicalization, but they never talk about how few people ever move from radical ideas to radical action. Oh, okay, let, let's, let's pick up yeah. on that, Mia. Let's yeah. pick up on that because I, I've made the same point for years now. So when I worked in, in for the security service, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, there'd be investigations we would do uh, based on reasonable grounds to suspect under our legislation. And yeah, we look at online profiles, look at the shit they're posting. And we found back then, this is the early 2000s, we found that the vast, vast majority of wankers who put stupid shit online never did a damn thing. They didn't, you know, we investigated them. We, we found there was no there there. They're either cowards or they're incompetent. And so we could dismiss them as being real security threats and, and, and hope that we're right. Because obviously, we, you know, we do make mistakes kind of thing. Why haven't we learned the lesson about the far right then? Because there's no question that the far right has become more of a threat, I would argue, in Canada and much of the West in recent years than it was, let's say, 20 years ago. It still hasn't surpassed jihadi threat on a global scale, but each country has its own circumstances. Why is it then that people who study this issue and who take these positions, why, had, why don't they realize that online activity is not a one-to-one -one mapping to real-world activity? Why are people not grasping that lesson? Well, I mean, and I want to make the distinction because I think when we look at the events of January 6th, we do have to take seriously far-right actors. And for me, it's about the intersectionality. It's about 
if people on the far right are also, you know, military veterans, yeah, or for people sure. on the far right have access to munitions or other kinds of bomb making materials, I think it's important that, you know, we disaggregate because the far right, like you're saying, is a catch all. Yeah. The, the part that sort of concerns me is that at least with two of the groups that were looked, so I'm not talking about the Proud Boys and Patriot Front or the neo-Nazis. I get that they are problematic and dangerous and depending on what country, even their, even what they say can be, can lead to incitement. Well, the part that I have real issue with is this idea that the growth of weaponized misogyny, that the incels are growing, that QAnon has, you know, millions of people who are following it and that this is a threat. I mean, if we have 30 million people who might be a terrorist, we have a much bigger problem. (laughs) And so, so that's where I think that at least for me, and maybe I'm, you know, living in the States too long. And so my Canadianness has worn down. But it just seems like there's, there's 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 a financial reason that you're pushing this narrative because if you don't say that these groups are a threat it's much more difficult to, get to convince DHS or DOD or NIJ to give you money or public safety Canada or whatever et cetera, et cetera. you know you you raised that really good point and again I, I pointed out that when I was in the security service uh, from a counterterrorism perspective, which is just part of the mandate, we were really focused, not exclusively, but largely on, on Islamist terrorism for the, for the right reasons. I mean, we'd had plots here in Canada. Canadians went to, Canadians went to go join ISIS and Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda, etc. And so we didn't have as many resources. That's changed in the past couple of years. Looking at the far right, and my contention was we weren't looking at them. Nothing happened. So you would assume that if your security and law enforcement agencies we're too busy looking towards the left, or I mean, I'm using the, just the term in one direction. Wouldn't the other direction be free to act? And yet, where were all the attacks? So, so further to your point, uh, I mean, if there are 30 million people out there, no one can follow 30 million people. I mean, MI5 has admitted that, you know, they've got 23,000 people of interest, most of whom are jihadis. And at any given time, 30 serious to, to life, you know, threat to life plots, they can't monitor it all. Can you imagine a world where the D, you know, at the FBI or CSIS or MI5 or whatever, has to monitor 30 million people. I mean, it's, it's simply impossible. So that simply underscores the point that if you if you use numbers like that, if you exaggerate the threat and nothing happens, shouldn't you be looking in the mirror and saying, um, am I misinterpreting the data or why am I calling it this way? Well, so part of the problem again, and I, I'm not trying to be difficult with you, Phil, because you know, we're friends for a long time. But I think that, you know, part of the issue has been is where are the attacks you know, at least, and I'm speaking with the United States because I don't know the Canadian landscape nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times what these attacks have been reframed as bias crimes or they've been yeah. reframed yeah. as hate crimes. Yeah. Now, there's a reason for that. It's not that we don't want to call a white supremacist who, you know, fits every definition of terrorism that we use, that we don't want to use the word terrorism because of some political partisanship, but from a legal framework, it's much easier in court uh, to investigate and try someone at the state level, not the federal level, for a bias or hate crime than it is for terrorism. So I've seen in a number of instances where the um, attorneys general could have gone in one or the other direction. And instead of calling it terrorism, they called it something else. And it wasn't because they weren't taking it seriously. It's because they wanted an easy win and it was low hanging fruit. I think when it's jihadi, there are political pressures not to call, you know, so somebody who's a Muslim 
at the workplace goes nuts and shoots up the place and kills his boss, that's clearly just workplace violence. That's, you know, someone who has snapped. Right. There was a lot of pressure to call that terrorism. Okay. And so that's where I think that the pressure has been applied in one direction and not the other. And I think that that might, the overcompensation might explain why a 17-year-old has been charged with terrorism offenses for being an incel when, you know, it's not a terrorist group. It's not, it doesn't have the structure, as you've said, it doesn't have the structure in the organization to be called terrorism. Yeah. It's interesting too, Mia, that even here in Canada, we've had some, and I agree with you completely. I think that when it comes time for the prosecution, which we call the crown here in Canada, to decide what charges to lay, they, of course, they want to win a court case. They don't want to go to court waste the taxpayers' money and get an acquittal. So they will go with the charges that are that are necessary and easy to prove. We had a case of a guy in Edmonton in 2017 uh, with an ISIS flag on his dash, clearly did it in, in what he thought was support of Islamic State, and he was charged with attempted murder. He was not charged with terrorism. So it, I, I agree with you. The legal argument is a really interesting one. Who benefits, though, from panic porn? I mean, aside from you know the money that you know the DOJ and, and public safety here in Canada will grant to academics and think tanks to do this, is there, are there other people that gain from this kind of this over-exaggeration of the threat from QAnon and accelerationists and God knows who else is in that universe of the far right? Well, you know, certainly anything that's involved with advertising with the clickbait. I think that mm. um, I, I remember being at a conference and uh, someone saying to me that uh, if it's if if the story is about terrorism, um, the various news agencies, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, get, end up getting a 72% share, whereas uh, on a daily basis, their share is closer to around 27%. Interesting. The news. Okay. And so there is this perverse incentive to, to call something terrorism before we actually know. And, and the best example that I can give you, one of my favorites, is a few years ago, there was a cab driver at LaGuardia mm-hmm. and he must have been on some sort of heart medicine, but he fell asleep at the wheel and his foot hit the, hit the gas. I remember that. And it jumped the curb, you know, and as you know, in front of any airport, yep. you've got that long queue of taxis and it was called terrorism before we had any information. Yeah. And then they had to crawl it back. Mm. And I think that in the olden days, before 9-11, you didn't call something terrorism until at least you had some information and some evidence substantiating it. Because between the corporate media, and and again, I don't know if CBC and CTV are different because it's, it's government-sponsored versus Fox News, MSNBC, CNN in the US, but we also see individual scholars who they can't possibly believe what they're saying when Mm. they call QAnon a terrorist group. When we know, you know, Dr. Moskalenko and I wrote a book on QAnon. Trust me, if there'd been terrorism, we would have found it. We were, you know, two long-standing terrorism scholars looking for terrorism. And in fact, what we found was mental illness. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's really important that we not make the same mistakes. We don't call incels terrorists because, first of all, the vast majority of the incels are not violent. Exactly. They're most dangerous to themselves. And, And to a certain extent, we can say this about QAnon. Now, where am I going to say, however, well, Reichsburger in Germany. Okay, yeah, now yeah. you've got a group of elite military people who are already sort of uh, bordering on neo-Nazis or yeah. believing in this ideology. They've got the skill and the acumen to kill people, and now they've been radicalized by QAnon. Okay, that's a really bad mix. That's a bad yeah. combination. Yeah. But separate? 
just looking at incels or just yeah. looking at yeah. QAnon, we really have to be a little bit more sophisticated in our nuance yeah. because these broad brushstrokes did not advance our safety in the 20 years after 9-11. And it's like, it's like the Groundhog Day. We're making yeah, the exactly. same mistakes. Well, and there was actually an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail in Toronto about two weeks ago by an academic here in Canada, I won't mention the person's name, who basically said that incels are a threat to national security. And I said, well, that, that's the equivalent of saying Muslims are a threat to national security. Because as you said, you know, the number of incels that have become violent, you can count on the fingers of one, one and a half hands. And by the way, before I want to pick up on the sort of walking back from your mistakes, it, it really burns my ass that people still refer to Alec Manassian as an incel, when in fact, the judge found categorically he had lied to embellish his own reputation. He was not an incel at all, and yet he gets, he's the poster child. So, okay, we, you know, you've made mistakes, uh, I've made mistakes. Um, a, a mature person says, okay, look it, I said this a week ago, I didn't have all the facts at hand, I rushed my analysis, I made a mistake, mea culpa, I, I'm going to, you know, apologize for getting it wrong. Yet, you never hear that in the media, yeah. do you? You never hear people say, I blew it. My bad. Why is that? Is it is it they're afraid of their reputations? Do they really care if they're found out to be wrong? Because they'll be asked again next week to comment on something else. Why is it we have this incredible inability for people to say, I should have waited till more facts were in before I pronounced I didn't, and I'll try not to do it again? Well, and it's funny because the easy answer for me would have been like, okay, well, that's the difference between men and women. But I'm seeing women. <laughs> oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> I'm saying, but I'm seeing women make the same mistake. You know, I, a few years ago, I was talking to David Lake. I was giving a talk at uh, San Diego and I, I had decided I was writing the, this was again, probably 2009, 2010, that I was going to write Bombshell. And he said, what inspired you to write this book on women and terrorism? And I said, well, because I think I made a mistake in dying to kill in the way I portrayed women. And he looked at me and he said, and you're going to admit the mistake. I said, I'm <laughs> going to write an entire book because I made a mistake. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, intellectual honesty. I mean, I, I would rather be honest yeah. with whether it's the Canadian public, whether it's the media, whether it's with my students or whether it's in, in my academic research that I think it's my, my, I guess the most important thing to me is my reputation yeah. and, and the fact that I'm reliable. And so if I make a mistake, I'll be the first one to call out the mistake, yeah. but I don't find this often. And I don't know if that's a human nature thing. I don't know if it's, it's certainly no longer a gendered thing, but I do feel that the better the scholar, the more comfortable they are mm -hmm. with admitting a mistake because oh, okay. their entire reputation is not hinging right. on always being right. So for perhaps like perhaps a very young scholar just making his or her name in the field, they maybe think that saying I was wrong may jeopardize future promotional opportunities or their reputation or how they're viewed by other people then? Or you have a lot of people who don't even like they don't have their PhD yet. And yeah. so, you know, okay. if they don't have their PhD, they don't have the reputation. Like part of it is, you know, I'm I'm fairly certain that if Stathis Kalivas made a mistake, he would admit he had a mistake. Mm, yeah. You know, if uh, if Bob Drivis, you know, rest in peace, had made a mistake, he would have been the first one to point out his mistake. Yeah. I think it requires a certain amount of self confidence. Yeah. That yeah. one mistake is not going to derail your career, and so it could have to do with junior senior. But I think it also is some people are never going to admit they're wrong. You know, they're, yeah, true. it's like the guy who won't stop and ask for directions. Oh, there you go again. This oh, I'm getting this real male bias. You're making me uncomfortable. Um, 
We've talked a lot about how we haven't learned much since 9-11, where we over-exaggerated the Al-Qaeda threat. And, you know, we saw it as existential in nature. This led to the war on terror, one of the, you know, useless um, phrases of declaring a war against a common noun. And the great paper that came out in Foreign Affairs in 2001 say, don't declare wars against common nouns because they can't surrender. It's a bad idea. Uh, so what are the downsides of panic porn, Mia? I mean, aside from maybe people get a little more alarmed about what they see online or they consume. Is there any real danger in people reacting to this over-exaggeration of the threat from groups like QAnon? And yeah, you, you mentioned the Proud Boys. And not, as I've said it a thousand times, the Proud Boys in Canada couldn't organize a piss up in a bar on a good day. And you know, to have them listed as a terrorist organization, just it makes me laugh kind of thing. But it, what, what, what could, what's the worst thing that can happen? when we are subjected to this exaggeration of the threat from the far right writ large, um, what, 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 what possibly could happen that's bad? Well, so part of it is that if we have bad analysis, it can lead to bad policies. And this is where I think it's important that um, we understand that we are always talking about a, uh, a series of events that are statistic considered to be statistically insignificant yeah. in the sense of not that they're not important, but they're very rare. Yeah. And, and part of it has to do with um, psychological. And when I use the term arousal, I'm not talking about the good one, but you know, we're always, <laughs> you know, with this, this constant state of psychological arousal, you know, you're always waiting for like these terrible things to happen. You have and a shooter drop. Right. And as a result, um, we don't we don't have well thought out prevention and we don't have well thought out treatment. And in order to to have a better option available, we really need to calm down and bring the temperature down to normal. And so with regard to the right wing, I certainly don't want to say there isn't a problem with increasing authoritarianism mm -hmm. and right wing groups that are spreading around the world. And we see things not just, um, let's say, January 6th in the United States, but we see these groups moving from radical ideas to radical action. So it's very important that we understand that. But if we are these Cassandras, these boy who cried wolf all the time, when we do identify a real threat, it's going to be um, taken less seriously because everything is a threat. Yeah. And so you, you cease to have as much of, as, uh, of an impact. But also, and this is again, according to some of the studies that were done, um, having to do with how Muslims were treated by uh, the immigration services, you know, that in itself can also be a radicalizing feature. Like, in other words, if people are mistreated by various government institutions because we've exaggerated a threat, we don't know if that's the intervening variable that's going to push them over the edge. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, absolutely. And we, we've seen, I think, instances where uh, mistreatment of Muslims in particular in the post 9-11 period did lead some people to go down that pathway. And, you know, and again, I, li I like how you framed, you know, t we, terrorism is obviously important. I mean, we can't ignore it. We can't ignore when people kill people, innocent people in the name of whatever cause you want to, you want to call it, but it is very infrequent. And as, and as I wrote, you know, in, in my, my latest book on the history of terrorism in Canada, if you use the broadest definition possible and include acts that I would not call terrorism, like Manassian's attack in 2018, We've had an attack on average every seven and a half years since Confederation, since 1867. I mean, you know, you can't go seven and a half days in Afghanistan or Somalia without an attack. So let's not try to, you know, 
embellish this threat, but yet our news media keeps doing it. I, I, I guess I hope, I'm hoping, I, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I'm, I'm hoping that media will, will realize bombarding us with this, uh, this hype over this threat is not a good thing. And maybe we should just dial it back. Like I said, yeah, news media, they, they want more eyeballs, obviously, on things. But it'd be nice if they could, you know, be, show a little bit more maturity and, and and not give us things that are that are patently untrue. Well, and I'll give you an example. So I work very closely with um, Ari Perliger, who I think has been on your podcast. He's an expert on the far right. Mm-hmm. And he's a dear friend of mine. I've actually known him since he was a grad student. So long time. He's a full professor now and at the UMass Lowell. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, he follows the right wing and he's looking at the data coming in from the ADL. And I'm going to say that, you know, I, I don't like nasty graffiti. I don't like desecration mm-hmm. of yep. cemeteries and headstones, but that's not the same thing as killing someone. Exactly. And so on the one hand, you have lots of people who make the distinction from the George Floyd protests that um, destruction of property is not the same thing as physical terrorism against people. But then you have groups like the ADL that are just doing this count. And so Ari, you know, and again, no one's going to say Ari is uh, anti-Jewish. <laughs> he's Israeli, but he's he's critical of some of the methodology that's being used. And the ADL, which does a lot of great work yep. and, and wonderful people. But, you know, they have the ear of the White House and they are testifying yeah. in front of committees, both at the Senate and at the at the congressional level. And so if we are hyping up every single anti-Semitic attack, we're going to miss the the really serious anti-Semitic attacks. We're going to miss the the fact that this is about changing our educational system. This is about changing our representation politically uh, for who, who we can vote for. This is about changing also what's considered to be acceptable and unacceptable. But at the same time, in the United States and to a lesser extent in Canada, we do have a freedom of speech and a freedom yep. of thought and a freedom of association. So we have to be very specific mm-hmm. about the harms and about the incitement because, you know, again, to quote Robert Jervis, if it's everything, it's nothing. Exactly. And I've been, yeah, I've been saying the same thing. If everything's terrorism, nothing terrorism. I mean, there's a phrase that I like to use as well that I heard just for the first time a couple of weeks ago. You know, we have people who are awful but lawful. I mean, they, they say some absolutely terrible things, but we have a Charter of Rights and Freedom in Canada. You have the Constitution of the United States that, you know, you can say things that are unpopular as long as you're not promoting or using violence kind of thing. Mia, I, you know, I got a suspicion that we could have talked about this for days. Um, I want to bring you back sooner, rather not just wait two and a half years till the next time, but I do want to thank you for, for weighing in on this topic. I think it's an important one, and I would I would really like to see some some take up uh, amongst not just the academic community, but the you know media in general to to stop using these really scary terms to refer to something that um, is it's bad, but it's not nearly as bad as we're purporting to be. So listen, it's it's you know a few days before the, the Christmas holidays. I appreciate you for taking the time, and we're going to talk sooner rather than later next time. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to use awful but lawful in the future, and I will cite you. No, not a worry. I'll, I'll claim it. Sure, why not? I'll be a typical male and say it was mine. Uh, that was my conversation with Mia Bloom, a Canadian who's in a Georgia state. Uh, what do you think about this notion about panic porn 
and how we have an over-exaggeration of certain types of violent extremism. I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, you can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. It's free of charge. All the podcasts and blogs are there. Perhaps leave some ideas for other guests for other Canadian Intelligence Day podcasts, ideas for other things to talk about. We'll talk again soon. Until then, take care.